Hello, I'm Courtney Garrett, and this is the 101 Christianity Podcast. These messages accompany Discovering the Character of God, a 14-week Bible study I wrote on the attributes of God, which is available on Amazon. I pray this message will encourage you as you grow in your understanding of God's character. So this is the first of three weeks when we are going to talk about the big O's, the three big O's. Today we're going to talk about omnipotence and then omnipresence and omniscience. Now, if you're not familiar with those terms, those are kind of big words that just mean omni means all. So we're going to talk about how God is all-powerful and he is all-present. And then lastly, how he is all-knowing. And so those are just fancy words. And if you haven't heard them before, you can impress people at a party with these words. Um, So what comes to mind when you think about God's power? Yesterday, I was on my way uh, to pick up my son from preschool here, and I got caught on 610 in that torrential downpour. And I don't know if any of you all were out in it, but 610 is not your favorite place to be when it's a torrential downpour. And, I mean, it was the kind where everybody's going like 30 miles an hour, and you are just crawling along, your, your, your car's kind of shaking, and I was like, this is the power of God right here. I'm, I'm experiencing it right here. Sometimes when you're preparing, these things just kind of come to you. But those are kind of the things we think about when we, when we think about God's power, right? We think about creation or how he just spoke the world into existence. And we think sometimes of natural disasters. Or um, we may, if we're thinking about the Bible, we'll think about maybe the parting of the Red Sea or the plagues. If we talk about uh, the New Testament, we'll we would think about the miracles of Jesus and maybe the resurrection. So God's power is really mind-blowing, and so how are we to think about it? Today what I thought we would do is look at God's power from three different perspectives. First, I want to look at God's power through a story in the Old Testament. Then I want to look at God's power through the miracles of Jesus in the resurrection. And then lastly, I want to talk about how we experience God's power in our daily life. So we'll do some Old Testament, so we'll do some miracles and resurrection, and then apply it in our daily lives. So as we think about God's power through a story in the Old Testament, uh, recently my pastor has been talking about how we are prone to domesticate God. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that term domesticate God or that phrase, but what that means is that we like to treat God like he is a bigger, better version of ourselves. That he, we like to think of God in human terms. I mentioned in your study this week that sometimes we even think of God kind of like a superhero. We need to think about God being totally other. And it is very hard, obviously, because we are limited in our ability to think in terms of God and his otherness. A medieval theologian, Anselm, put it this way. He said, God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. He is the perfect being. We think sometimes that God thinks like we do and acts like we, we, we would, only, only better. And that's the way we domesticate God. And when we do this, I think we forget his power. My oldest asked me in the car the other day what it meant to fear God. He had heard that. And you can imagine, I mean, that's kind of confusing for us to think about. And so when you're a kid, you're thinking, I'm supposed to love God, but then I'm supposed to fear him? Now, how does that look? And so 
you know, those, those questions always throw you off. You're like, oh, well, let's just talk about that for a second. But I was trying to come up with, with words like awe and wonder and respect. And because God is so awesome, we fear him because he's so amazing. And yes, he's personal and he's love, but we are also called to fear him. So I could have picked several stories in the Old Testament that demonstrated God's power, but I recently read through the book of Job, and I'm doing the chronological reading plan, and if you have ever done that before, you know that Job comes really in the beginning, uh, close to the beginning, somewhere in Genesis. It's probably before Moses, but after Jacob, that's what smart people tell me, um, theologians, and so you remember the story, uh, I'm sure, or parts of it that that what happens in Job is that Satan comes before God and says, hey, look at your, look at your righteous. Well, actually, God comes to Satan and says, have you, have you considered Job? Look at him. And Satan goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you take away everything, he is not going to praise you. He will not, you know, he will turn against you, basically. And then God says, okay, you can take away everything, but don't take away his life. And so little by little, well, it's actually not little by little at all. It's all in one fell swoop, right? He just wipes out his children, all of his belongings. You know, he was a very wealthy man. And then he takes away his health. So Job is left really with, with nothing except his wife, who isn't much help. And then his friends come along, and instead of being comforting, they begin to just continue to say, what is it that you have done to bring this upon yourself? And so... I want to look at Job today because the last few chapters of Job, God begins to answer, answer him um, and speaks for the first time after Job has been through this great crisis. Um, so turn to Job um, 38. Job is just to the left of Psalms in the middle of your Bible. What happens at the end of Job is that God begins a series of rhetorical questions, 77 questions in total. God asked Job. Somebody else counted that. I didn't, but there are 77. And we're just going to read a few of them because here we are trying to feed, you know, Job does not understand what has happened, but God wants to just set things right, and we see God's power in it. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. This is poetry, and so sometimes it's harder to follow if you have a different translation. You're welcome to, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. I, I feel like this is something that will be helpful as we think about the power of God. So start with me in verse 1 of chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel my words without action? Excuse me, without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken of it? 
It is changed like clay under seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take to its territory, and that you may discern the paths of its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, and where is the east wind, and where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has a cleft, a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the change of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings, that they may go, and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts, or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom, or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens? When the dust runs into a mass, and the clods stick together, fast together, can you hunt the prey for a lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions, when they crouch in their dens, or lie in wait in their thicket? Who proves for the raven its excuse me? Who provides for the ravens its prey when the young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? And they, and he's just getting warmed up. <laughs> so there are times when I am confused about what God's up to, and these verses seem to set me straight. We need to remember that God's loving. He's not doing this, uh, uh, you know, to be, to be harsh with him. He's just wanting him to understand who he is, who he is. So there's many lessons that we can see in this. But when we understand and look at this, what I see is my smallness in God's majesty. He... Has, he, he knows where the storehouses of snow are and where the lightning comes from. And he created all of it. And so we know so little. And as he, we go on into these verses, God never addresses why Job suffered. Not one time. He's saying, I'm enough. Will you trust me? I would encourage you to read through the end because it's, it's an important to, for us to understand that when we are confused, we just don't understand God and he is worth our trust, but he is other. He is not like us. We cannot domesticate God. So obviously there are many other wonders God performed in the Old Testament. We'd mentioned the cre just creation, the flood, um, the parting of the Red Sea. But Moses and the prophets, when they performed those miracles, their purpose was to authenticate God's message. God demonstrates his power in the Bible always to set himself apart, to bring glory to himself, and to bring about faith in people. 
And so we see it, see it here in Job. And then Moses says in, in Exodus 15, 11, he says, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Who is like our God? Psalm 77, 14, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your, your might among the peoples. So understanding God's power keeps us in a place of awe, not domesticating him, not trying to make him smaller than he is. And I think that these verses in Job help us to get into a mindset of understanding that more fully. Secondly, let's look at how understanding God's power through the miracles of Jesus and the resurrection gives us an understanding of it. Um, I'm not sure when the last time you've really thought about why Jesus did performed miracles. Why did he? Was it just to kind of show that he had these superpowers? Um, what, was, what was really the reason? Like the prophets um, in the Old Testament and Moses, Jesus and even the apostles, when they performed their miracles, they were all to authenticate the message that they were coming with. The seminary professor, Doug Bookman, he says it this way, the miracles themselves were not, were not ways for Jesus to show off his power, especially since he had given up his former glory to come to earth and do the will of the Father in heaven. Instead, the miracles vindicated his claims about himself and his teaching. Although he didn't need to perform any miracles and refused to perform them on demand, they came so that others may believe. They were always to invite and encourage belief in him. Before he raised Lazarus from the dead, do you remember the story? He leaves Lazarus. He knows about Lazarus dying. He gets word, and then he waits for three days until Lazarus is good and dead. And he says this in John eleven fourteen. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. He wanted to work a raising, a raising Lazarus from the dead so that people would understand who he was to authenticate his message. But his greatest thing, that his, his claim, was that he had the power to forgive sin. That's why he was, was put on trial. Who are you to say that you could forgive sin? Are you kidding me? This is what the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees all were totally taken back with. And so when Jesus is, here, is healing the paralytic, I love it because before he heals them, he says, your sins are forgiven. In Matthew 9, 5, he says after that, for which is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The greatest miracle in that story is not that he healed the paralytic. The greatest miracle in that story is that he said, I have the power to forgive sins. So then as we ponder the resurrection, it's important for us as we understand God's power. If you grew up in the church, you most definitely heard that Jesus died for your sins. At its most basic level, that's what we hear. That's what we teach our children. Jesus died for your sins. We need to be careful because that is an incomplete gospel. It is not just that Jesus died for our sins. It is that Jesus, what? Easter came, right? He rose again. He rose again. You know, any good man could have died for our sins. Now, it would not have had the same power because he was sinless and perfect. Anybody could have died. Not everybody can, rise, can, can be risen from the dead, right? So we have to understand that without the power of the resurrection, there isn't hope in overcoming sin and death. We can't forget Easter. 
I recently read, this is crazy to me, that a fourth of Christians or more don't believe in the resurrection. That's like an oxymoron. And I, I'm not going to judge hearts. I'm not going to say that I don't, I don't know. I don't know. These, the statistics, just take them or leave them. It's discouraging. But, I, you know, I'm not one to judge. But I, I can boldly say that Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says it perfectly. Paul wrote, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Without the resurrection, ladies, we don't have hope. With the resurrection, we have hope for the life to come and hope for his power to live within us today. His resurrection proves he overcame the curse of sin, which is death. And if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. So we need to preach the complete gospel. We are raised to a new life with a living hope. So while it is important that we teach our children and maybe somebody that you're sharing the gospel with, Jesus died for you, don't forget to say, and he rose again. Because that is where the power is for us to understand this new life that he's called us to. Ephesians 1, 18 through 21 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which, you has, to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates the great power of God and its great hope for all believers. Because he lives, we will live also. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says, Peter says this, tells us that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And we, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation. So there's so much hope and understanding that the miracles weren't just something just to be flashy. It was to to authenticate the message and to, to allow people to believe in him. But then the best part came when he died and then was raised to new life to give us a living hope. So how in our daily life are we to experience God's power? I think we can talk about that, but we want that, and how can that look? I want to close with four things that I think will help us live into the power that, we, that, that, that Christ gives us. The first thing is we need to remember our power sources. Remember your power sources. When you come to Christ, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Let's not forget that. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. And if you need a refresher on what all the Holy Spirit does, go back to the first chapter on the Trinity and look at all of the things that the Holy Spirit does. He convicts. He protects. He comforts. He leads us into truth. He does all of these things. That It's amazing that, li that he lives within us. And then don't forget your other power source, which is the truth, God's word, that is alive and what? Powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can pierce your heart. It can 
All those things we read about in Psalm 19 enlightens your eyes. It gives you wisdom. It does all these things. But in order to walk in the spirit and in truth, God's word, we have got to do battle against our sin. We can't walk in sin. We have to keep short accounts with God. We have to confess, repent, claim truth from God's word. Sin is crouching at our door always. And so in order for us to live in that keeping in step with the spirit, we've got to be honest before the Lord and tell him we've missed the mark every day. We do. And so to confess that and repent and stay in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So let's not forget our power sources, the Holy Spirit and God's word. Secondly, we recognize God is able to do anything he wills and nothing is impossible for him. He's able to do anything he wills. Not one thing is impossible for him. I love in the book of Daniel the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Godly men who refused to bow down to the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had, had erected. And they were all ordered to, to bow down. And I love what they say. Write down these verses because they are so powerful. Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That's powerful. Because you're saying, Lord, you can. I don't know if you will, but no matter what, I'm going to trust in your goodness. And another example, I love this um, story. It's, so we've got these uh, Bible videos that we watch every now and then. They, my parents gave to us. And um, we got on a roll with David and Goliath because I have two boys and they're young. And what boy doesn't love David and Goliath? I just want to see him go down again. And it's just like, we, it was on like repeat for a long time in our house. And, uh, but these are really well-made videos and, you know, I'd be chopping onions or whatever and be listening to it in the background and all this. But there's a part in the story in this, in this video, they take a little bit of artistic license, but I think that this is consistent with the scripture. So uh, Samuel, the prophet, has come to anoint David, the king. And he, well, he doesn't know it's David yet, right? He just knows, go to Jesse, he's got some sons, and I'm going to show you which one is the new king. So, of course, Jesse has all of his sons and the biggest and strongest, and Samuel's like, surely it's this one, and God says, not that one. You know, they go all down the row. And little David is just out being a shepherd, and so they finally call him in, right? And so the one that doesn't look like the king is anointed as king. And so, you know, it's so funny in the movie. All the brothers are like, what? You know, and so <laughs> anyway, it's uh, effective. So as they're leaving, though, there's this moment between this father, Jesse, and Samuel as he's leaving. And it's really powerful because Jesse goes, Samuel, I know Saul's temper. And when he finds out that a new king has been anointed, you know, he's going to kill David. And Samuel turns and he says this, I don't know how the Lord will work this out. I only know he can. I don't know how he's going to work it out. I only know he can. He can't. And I, you know, I'm sitting there chopping onions and then I'm just... <laughs> um, I love that prayer. I don't know how you're going to work this out, God, but you're powerful enough to do it. I know you can. 
And that's the kind of power that we've got to cling to when we don't understand how God's going to work out a situation. I don't know how you're going to work it out, but I know you can. Third, we need to rest in God's power by reveling in our weakness. I don't like to revel in my weakness. I don't know if you do. I mean, sometimes I can complain, but I'm not, like, jazzed about it. But Paul says you should boast in it. And you all read that verse this week, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. What does that mean? What does that mean to boast? You know what I think it means is that we are put in our rightful place by saying, like Job in that situation, Oh my goodness, God, you are God. I am not. I am so dependent upon you. Who am I, Lord? And then that is a way that Christ's power can rest, rest on us. Ephesians 3.20, God's power is exalted in us most when our weakness, it says, are greatest because he is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. What? According to his power that is at work within us. It's mind-blowing. We can't even conceive his, his power and what he can do. I heard, heard it once said this way, and this helps me to understand what it means to, to boast in our weakness, that Christ is magnified in your dependence, and he is exalted in your desperation. Christ is magnified in your dependence, and he is exalted in your desperation. We see that all throughout the Psalms. David crying out to, G, to, to God all the time to, to help him in his desperation. I don't think we get desperate enough sometimes. I think we feel like we're kind of cruising along on our own. But when we are laid low and just say, Lord, only you can work this out, I think Christ is, is truly magnified and truly exalted. He is magnified in our dependence and exalted in our desperation. Lastly, we need to recall his power to sustain you and not just heal you. Recall his power to sustain us and not just heal us. I think we have a problem in our Western world. We hear about somebody's diagnosis or we hear about somebody's situation, a tragedy, and what happens? We call it the small group and everybody gets together and we want to pray it away, don't we? The cancer diagnosis, let's pray that away. Let's pray for healing. Come on, let's get together. Somebody's going through some marital, let's, come on, let's get that, come on, let's get on with it. I am not saying it is wrong for us to pray that way. However, in other parts of the world, people are praying differently. They are not praying to, for healing right away. They are saying, Lord, would you allow me to prove faithful in the midst of this suffering? What would happen if we prayed that way? We should not pray just to restore our comfort. I mean, and honestly, the Western world, we, have, we are numbed out aren't we, a little bit, because we are so used to comfort that we begin to freak out when we don't have it. What would happen, though, if we said, Lord, help me to prove faithful in this hardship. Help me to be a testimony of your faithfulness and your goodness in the midst of this pain. What would happen if we prayed like that? It changes everything if we begin to pray like that. And yes, we pray for the healing. Don't hear me wrong on that. Absolutely. We don't want suffering. But what's the greater good in all of it? That God would be glorified in and, in and through it. 
We serve a powerful God, and we can appeal to him to use his power. But let's not miss a blessing for how he may prove to be powerful, even more so perhaps, in the way that we withstand all of the pain that might come through his power than just if he brought healing. So there's so much to understand, much more to understand about God's power, but let's not forget that when we're, when we're stuck, go to Job sometimes and look at those verses and just read them and, and just be, let your mind be blown that the God of the universe who knows where the storehouses of snow loves you and cares for you, and he knows so much more than what we know in our little world, look to what Jesus did and his miracles and in the power of the resurrection. Tap into those power sources, the Holy Spirit and God's word. And let's not waste our suffering for his glory and our, and our good. Let's pray. Father, we do know that you can do immeasurably more than all we could ask or even imagine. And Father, we do struggle with really wanting to be comfortable. I know I do. I struggle with wanting to be comfortable in my life. And Lord, when we are in these uncomfortable seasons of suffering and pain, I pray, Lord, that our, our hearts would be turned more to how your power will give us the ability to withstand anything that comes our way. Lord, perhaps that is a way that the world is going to come to know you. We don't ask for pain. We don't ask for suffering. But we know that that's part of our story in this, in this fallen world. So, Lord, help us to prove faithful in it. And, Lord, I pray that we would understand that the same power that raised Jesus has raised us to a, a new life, a living hope, such that we can have hope in this world and then in the one to come. We'll live forever with you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about our resources, please visit 101christianity.com. And for more encouragement, you can follow along on Instagram at Courtney underscore Garrett underscore. Let's press on as we seek to know the truth and share the truth.